6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Monarchy of Israel. First Kings. Bear in mind, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings are 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Kings in the, in the Greek and in the, in the Latin, but anyway, we'll stick with the traditional one here. And the 1st Kings will close with the antics of this incredible character called Elijah, a very colorful character. The first book of Kings is, can be called really discontinuous through disobedience. They're starting to have real problems. Solomon reigned for 40 years. First book of Kings deals with the accession, the temple being built. And it's the peak of Israel's fame and glory in the days of Solomon. But he also turns apostate. We'll talk about that in a minute. And that leads to declension and, and finally decease. The kingdom finally divides, because when he, Solomon finally does die, Rehoboam takes over. But Rehoboam does some ill-advised increase of taxes and other things that gives the excuse for Jeroboam to peel off in a rebellion. Jeroboam organizes the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah, the northern kingdom is called Israel. And when you're reading the Bible in this area, you need to be careful what it says Israel, whether it's talking about the northern kingdom or the nation as a whole. We tend to use the term Israel for the nation as a whole, and that's appropriate. But there's a period there where Israel, the house of Israel, was the northern kingdom, sometimes called Ephraim. Not, it was more than just Ephraim, but Ephraim was the, the primary spokesman tribe, if you will, of that group. And Jeroboam, of course, leads them to idolatry for a number of reasons. And as an attempt to get the northern kingdom straightened out, Elijah is there primarily ministering in the north and has some very colorful episodes. For a period of about 80 years, the divided kingdom continues there before it finally goes under. But Solomon, we talked about David. Let's talk a little bit about Solomon. He acceded the throne when he was 15 years old. Adonijah attempted to preempt, but he was thwarted by Nathan the prophet. So he doesn't, he's not able to pull it off. In fact, David, on his deathbed, instructs Solomon to clean house of a whole bunch of overdue punishments. And that would include Joab had previously murdered Abner. So David says it's time to deal with Joab. And there's also the Shimei issues and some other issues that he, he goes through a little checklist, punch list, if you will, for Solomon when he takes the throne. And then, of course, the big event in Solomon's career is the building of the temple. And uh, the cedars of Lebanon were famous, and, and uh, they're much more attractive than the coarser sycamores that were typically available in the south. So arrangements are made. Hiram is the king of Tyre up there, and he had a very close friendship with David. It was his friendship with David that really sets this all up. But something that most people don't notice is that the design of the temple was given to David by God himself. Most of us assume the temple was just Solomon's rendering in more elegant terms of the basic architecture of the tabernacle. No, it's more than that. In fact, there are some architectural features to the temple 
that go beyond what the tabernacle had, besides just being larger and so forth. And it's important to understand that that was God-given. I'll show you why in a minute. But this project of building the temple, the first temple as we might call it, had over 183,000 workmen, 30,000 men, 10,000 per shift in a month. Uh, 70,000 carriers, 80,000 hewers in the mountains, and over 3,000 supervisors. That's a bunch of, uh, that was a mammoth, mammoth project of the temple. Now the architecture of the temple is worth studying. You, 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 when you look at this, you'll recognize right away it's very similar to the tabernacle in its concept. The tabernacle was 75 feet wide, 150 feet long, if we accept a foot and a half for a cubit. This is much larger, much, much larger, and of course a permanent structure, not designed to be portable like the tabernacle was, which is designed for the wilderness wanderings. But the architecture is very similar. As you enter first, the first thing you encounter is the Holocaust altar, the, altar, or the brazen altar, except this was larger. And around it are ten lavers of bronze for the washing. There's also a molten sea, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but a huge, huge basin, seven and a half feet deep and about ten feet in diameter, that the priests would be able to uh, do ritual uh, cleansing in. And when you go through all that, you then enter the holy place itself, that first rectangular edifice. As you walk in, instead of a menorah, a, a seven-branched lampstand, there are ten of them in there. And then you go a little further, there are not, not just a table of showbread, but ten of them. So everything is, you know, the decimal points moved over, so to speak. And then just as you did in the tabernacle, you encounter the golden altar, or the altar of incense. It's always associated with the Holy of Holies. Many people assume it's in there. No, it can't be in there. It has to be tended day and night. So it's out, and they couldn't go in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest, only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies, and only once a year, and only after great ceremonial preparation. But as part of that edifice was the golden altar, which was just outside the veil, but regarded as part of the Holy of Holies, we have the golden altar, the altar of incense. And as you go through, uh, when you could, if you could, at least in your mind's eye, go through that veil, you there would find two things, not one. Many of us stumble on that. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, was in there. But on top of the Ark is a separate appliance, a separate piece of furniture, so to speak. And that's the mercy seat. And uh, we often regard those together, it's instructive to be sensitive to the fact that the Scripture always deals with them separately. In fact, strangely enough, the mercy seat is a superior element to the ark. Several places, the Holy of Holies is described as the place of the mercy seat. Yes, it's the place of the ark covenant too, but, but it's the mercy seat that's preemptive here. So that's the quick picture of the thing. But there's something added that's not in the tabernacle. And that's a porch in front. And in front of the porch there are two other objects, two bronze pillars. These are huge bronze pillars that have nothing on top of them. They're not bearing, they're not weight bearing. What are they there for? And furthermore, they have names. To the one side, to the south, it's Yachin, and to the uh, north, it's Boaz. Yachin means uh, in his counsel, what the word means, and Boaz means in his strength, is what the term means. 
something else to be sensitive to, everything outside the temple itself, the, the Holocaust altar, the molten sea, and these labors are all bronze, as are the pillars. Everything, else, everything inside is gold. Around the outside of the temple structure proper are wooden chambers. And these are very, very interesting elements. They're called headers. These were the private storerooms for the priests. This is where the priests could keep their personal things. And this is also where the priests would keep their secret idols. These were closets that were supposed to be, that needed to be cleaned out. So we have the Holy of Holies, the most inner sanctum. We have the holy place, and we have the porch, which is a new element, and we have the inner court, and of course the outer court outside. So those are the main things that are obviously very similar to, but slightly different than the tabernacle we were familiar with. Now it's interesting that seven times in the Bible it says, ye are the temple of God. Seven times that's mentioned. Now that might be just being used metaphorically, because you're the temple of God in the sense the Holy Spirit indwells you. That may be all there is. And yet, it's interesting that it's seven times in the text. If you take the view that I do, that that's deliberate and it's part of the design, then it also turns out to hold the key to our software architecture. You know, if we talk about architecture of a building, I think most of us have a feeling for what that involves. If you talk about architecture of a computer, that's also hardware. You've got memory, you've got processors, you've got identifiable chunks of it that have functional relations to one another. And they're easy to, I could sketch it out and it'd be easy to understand because it's tangible. What most people, unless you're in the trade, have no idea is that there's architecture to software too. See, the thing that controls a computer's behavior is not the hardware. It's simply the environment that the software runs in. It's the software that determines what it really does. Now, it's interesting. You and I are the same way. Uh, we have uh, an architecture. And we speak of terms all the time that really relate to that architecture. Heart, soul, spirit, mind. What do these things mean? When I say, have heart, we're not talking here about the organ that pumps the blood. We're using it metaphorically or idiomatically in another sense, aren't we? But what do we really mean? You know, in some sense it's like having guts. In some sense it's volition. The word can mean different things to different people. The word soul. What is a soul? We can make some guesses. We have some sort of feeling for it. But what does it really mean? And spirit, the scripture itself, Acts 4 says, or Hebrews 4, the, 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 only the word of God can discern between the soul and the spirit. A psychologist can't. There's a very interesting problem. If you have a computer, can you map the architecture of the software in the computer? And the answer is no, you can't. Because you can't go uphill. Because you... You design that into a language, the language is then implemented, and by the time you get down to what they call machine language, you can't go uphill. Not generally. There's some exceptions, but not generally. That's why you have a software industry. That's why you can go to a computer store and buy some software, 
and use it all you like, but you can't change its design because you can't get at it. You don't know how it's organized. That's what protects the intellectual property. Down in the guts of that, there's some proprietary know-how that's embedded in the code. The code's there, you've got it, but you can't unravel it. If you're trying to understand my computer from the way it behaves, you'd be frustrated. You can't get at its architecture. That's the same dilemma a psychologist has. He can only infer how you're organized, how you're organized by the external behavior. He doesn't get a chance to. Only God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, the Scripture says. You can't get behind it. So the only way you can understand the architecture is to get the designer's manual, not the owner's manual, the designer's manual. And uh, that's exactly what we have in front of us, in our laps. We have the designer's manual. And he has given us the architecture of our software. And the heart, soul, spirit, mind, these are important terms because you can't keep the greatest commandment unless you know what they are. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your spirit, all your strength, all your mind, whatever. These things are important to know. So I'm indebted to my wife who spent 20 years researching this, checking out each word in the Hebrew and the Greek for each of those terms and, and tracking that down. We even went to uh, Israel, went to the uh, uh, Rothschild Museum, uh, Library and Museum and so forth to do research here and got a lot of help. She was the first in my mind to really perceive the parallelism between the struct, the architecture of the temple and the architecture of man, ourselves. The outer court similar to the body, but inside that is the soul. And then the heart is in the real core and the spirit is in the Holy of Holies. They're analogous, if you will, in a number of ways. And what's the porch? That's, the pl that's where the volition is expressed. That's where there's willpower. That's where you make choices. Because you notice that the Spirit dwells in us if we're believers, right? How many knew that? Sure. Okay, that's what the Scripture says. Okay. Why don't we see it more evident? Why doesn't our behavior demonstrate that the Spirit is in us? You, follow, you, see, you see the dilemma. It's not that the Spirit isn't there, it's that we throttle it. Because we make our decisions from sight or from faith. Do we make our, do, see, we make our deci the decisions are made in the porch. Are we letting the Spirit lead? Or are we responding to soulish or bodily appetites? And then there's this interesting area called the headers, the storehouses. And the more you study this, both in terms of the history with the priests, but also in its other aspects, it seems to be correlative to the subconscious. It's interesting that much of our memory is obviously organized below the conscious level. We've all experienced that. Gee, what was the name of that guy in school back then? I don't remember. And then 10 minutes later, it'll just pop in your mind, right? Because you're subconsciously, you've got a process going on to find it. If you've been in college and you have a difficult problem, you, you, uh, most of you have discovered that if you review the problem before going to bed, you wake up in the morning, you often have the answer. It's clear there's all kinds of evidence. This, this is not Freud. Freud was obsessed with all that. No, no, it goes way, way back. It goes back to Augustine and others. 
the, 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 the awareness that there is a subconscious process in our mind is, is, is very evident. That's also where we hide things that affect our behavior. And they're part of spiritual hygiene, if you will, is to clean out those closets. And the Holy Spirit will help you do that. But we need, we need to, if you're interested in this area, there's a trilogy of books. The core book is The Way of Agape. And the second one of that series is Be Transformed, which really goes into all of this. How to actually take these concepts and insights and translate them into a personal, practical impact on your Christian walk. And so I don't want to spend the rest of the time, we've got to keep moving here, but, but that's uh, an area. Another thing I want to bring out, is the Bible inerrant? You know, most of us in this group, of course, take, accept the fact the Bible is, the original texts are free of error. Well, I used to say that a lot when I was a teenager, and I ran into a guy who said, what about 1 Kings 7.23? 1 Kings 7.23 speaks of this big, huge bronze laver or bowl or molten sea, it's, as it's trans- molten meaning it's cast and sea being a, full of uh, water. It was 10 cubits in diameter and 5 cubits deep. Five cubits, about a foot and a half. But the problem with that verse 23, it says the circumference is three times the diameter. Now, any schoolboy knows that can't be right. That's, that's technically an error. Not a big deal, but it's wrong. Every schoolboy knows that the circumference is not three times the diameter, it's pi times the diameter. Pi is a very peculiar number. Most people may not remember it was 3.14159265358979. But most of us in school either use 3.16 or 3.159 or often 22 sevenths, three and a seventh as approximation. And that's what most of us did in school. But it certainly isn't three times. And so part of the problem, this is not a big deal, but the accusations made by the skeptics, look, there's an error in the Bible. Well, I didn't know how to answer this. I just had to accept it until I got into graduate school or whatever. And a rabbi happened to point out something interesting to me because I had trouble with this. Here's the molten sea, 10 cubits from one brim to the other, and it was round all about, and its height was 5 cubits, and a line, 30 cubits, did compass it round. Another circumference. In the Hebrew, it's misspelled. The, the Masoretes, when they found a word in the text they were copying that was apparently wrong, they didn't correct it, they marked it. And they put in the margin what apparently was the correct version. The mistake, apparent mistake, or the error, the variant, I'll call it, was called a kathif. And the correct version was called a kiri. And what's interesting when you study this, you also need to understand that Hebrew, like both Hebrew and Greek, are distinctive in that every letter in the alphabet has a numerical value. And that one of the applications of that fact is that they would add up the numbers on a page, and if it didn't add up to the one they were copying, they would burn it and start over. They didn't try to correct it. In other words, they were really very rigorous. The rigor of the scribes is something to be really applauded at. And that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were discovered, in the, had a complete copy of the book of Isaiah, and I think there were four letters different. Over hundreds of years and many copying. Well, if you go through these letters, it turns out that the kathiv, that is the written variation, is a kapf, a vav, and a, and a he. And the way it should be spelled is just with a kapf and a vav. Now, a kapf and a vav would be, the, the, the value for kiri should be 106. 
But here they've added a hey at the end of the word. Now you can't even tell because it's just a breath. It's like putting the H at the end of a word. Often does you can't tell it's there in pronunciation. But the hey has a value of five. And by the way, the hey is also the breath or spirit too, by the way. It's, it, but that's a whole other thing we'll get into some other time. So Kiri should be 106, but the way it's spelled is 111. And when you apply that correction to the text, it says that the circumference is 31.415 and some other things. In other words, we have a circumference of 46 feet that is expressed with an error of less than 15 thousandths of an inch. And that's a lot better than we would have gotten if we'd used 22 sevenths as an approximation. The precision is, frankly, astonishing. And so a little spelling lesson. I might mention just in passing that there's another place that pi appears in the Bible text. It's one, pi is one of the dimensionless ratios. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth is Genesis 1.1. Take that in the Hebrew and you take the number of letters times the product of the letters and divide it by the number of words and, and times the product of the words, you get pi to four decimal places. That's rather bizarre. There's another place in John 1.1. 1, 1. If you do the same thing with John 1.1, 1, 1, you get the value of E, the base of Napierian logarithms, another dimensionless constant in the universe, uh, two four decimal places. But let's move on. So that's pi. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know what you do with that. I just throw it in there to, you know, no extra charge. Okay. Solomon was personally very brilliant, but he lacked moral vigor. Very bright guy, but he lacked commitment. He was, of course, excessively self-indulgent. There it goes again. So historically, he, he, he ruled at the peak of Israel's prosperity. The Queen of Sheba visited him because she'd heard rumors and couldn't believe it. When she gets there, she found out that the half wasn't told her. Very famous event. The affluence, the su commercial success of Israel. The peace, they enjoyed peace. There was no war. They really were, it was at their peak. But it's interesting how Solomon is always, later on historically, always referred to adversely. Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these lilies and so forth. It's always used as a measure, but in an adverse sense. It's very strange. Now, there are many parallels people try to draw between the millennial reign and Solomon's reign. But there's also some strange hidden negatives. It's interesting that there were six steps to his throne. It's interesting that his salary was 666 talents a year. In fact, the 666 only appears twice in Scripture. Twice it appears as Solomon's salary, and of course it takes fabled implication from uh, the 18th verse of Revelation 13. But uh, so Solomon really represents the zenith of the kingdom. They owned the uh, Mediterranean uh, all the way to the Euphrates, from the Red Sea and Arabia to Lebanon. The tributary states were held in subjection. The Canaanites became peaceable subjects or useful servants, so they were subjected. The immense treasures that were under David were supplemented with excessive, in fact, oppressive taxation. In fact, that's where Rehoboam makes a big mistake. When Solomon dies, he even increases the taxes worse, and that leads to the rebellion. So we have the literature of success. The foundation was in the Torah. We have the history from Moses to Samuel at this point. 
We have the patriarchal teaching of Job, and we'll get to that in the next session. We have the theology of the Psalms in the next session, and the practical wisdom of the, wisdom of the Proverbs, primarily uh, Solomon's. And then we have the mystical suggestions in the Song of Songs. And so this really sets the stage for the next session we'll be getting into. Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs and 1,000 songs. And uh, he also wrote a great deal about natural history. And we'll see a glimpse of some of that in the writings that we do look at. But he failed. Because Deuteronomy 17 says that Israel's king should not multiply wealth, horses, or wives. And he did all three. He did all three. He traded in chariots and horses. That's what Megiddo was at one time, was his primary trading base. He indulged many foreign wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Whew! From the very nations that uh, uh, he was warned against trafficking at all in. Of course, obviously, many of these were just uh, political alliances and things. As a result of all of this, it's in his regime that false gods are introduced and false worship. This is where the nation starts downhill because of its carnality, because of its false worship and the rest. So Solomon's self-life had had its full swing. In the end, he was turning away sad and sick of it all. And he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, which most people do not understand, misunderstand it. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes is actually not a pessimistic book. That may surprise you. That's his reputation. Well, we'll wait until next session. We'll take a look at it. But anyway, there's apostasy starts. He, he, he himself falls into apostasy. His excessive taxation, of course, alienates the affections of the people. And that's why Jeroboam had a good opportunity to rebel when the time came. He was led astray by his wives. He had temples built to several, to Shemosh, Moloch, and Esterish, the idols of Moab and Ammon and the Sidonians, Sidonians to the north and Moab and Ammon to the east, on the temple grounds. This is an offense. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.